Hello and welcome to the Impact Insights Podcast. I'm Frances Dwyer, the General Manager of the Impact Agency in Australia. This is our first podcast and we are going to be exploring the topic of behavioural science. So this may sound like a science podcast, but it's not. It's actually all about marketing and communications and how different disciplines and insights can help to shape and inform the way we communicate with those people we want to talk to, the human beings that sit on the other side of our target audiences. Now, as human beings, we are surrounded by exponentially increasing influences and choices every waking moment of our day. For marketing and communications professionals, it's vital that we understand the way in which human beings make brand decisions to create true moments of connection with our customers. So to explore this topic, we're going to be talking to behavioural economist Chris White and CEO of fintech disruptor Zupa, Jessica Ellum. We're going to sort the BS from the BE and discuss how an evidence-based approach is helping brands and governments to optimise their communications. Chris White is a qualitative researcher and behavioural economics consultant. He has conducted commercial and social projects in Australia, Southeast Asia and the Middle East. He is also a member of the Australian Market and Social Research Society and his thinking is really grounded in behavioural science, evolutionary psychology, sociology and cultural analysis. Chris, thanks for coming in today to chat to us. As I mentioned before, it sounds like we're going to do a science podcast today, but we're not. It's not going to be boring. It's not going to be all about (laughs) data, but it is going to teach us a little bit more about how we behave as humans. So, Chris, there's lots of terms being bandied about at the moment in regards to behavioural economics, behavioural psychology, behavioural science. Uh, Are there any differences in these terms and should we be using a particular one? Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Francis. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's a bit of a a maze and terminology soup here. I do see a distinction, and it's largely between different industries. Mm -hmm. The way I look at it is behavioural science is the overall discipline. This is the most overarching aspect of it, probably the kind of academic discipline. Underneath that, I think behavioural economics has been really useful. The challenge there is that it's got the word economics in it, and so people will make assumptions based on that and think it's to do with with finance, which it kind of has been, but it's not exclusively. That being shortened to BE has worked, and there's been some really interesting debates about this, um, and I think it is very useful. It sort of functions as a brand, BE this, BE that. Mm. Bit better than BS for behavioural science. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Always got to think of that. Um, and I think it's kind of given it a cool factor. People saying, "Oh, I want BE in yeah. my project." Okay. Well, what what does that mean? Other terms like nudges, interventions, and behavioural insights. I think most importantly here is to use the terms that will engage your audience appropriately. Some mm-hmm. can be off-putting. I often refer to it as behavioural psychology as the most fundamental aspect. Okay. No, that's really interesting. So you're essentially using the discipline to determine <laughs> which term to use. Great. When I you like what you've people. done there. That's great. <laughs> great. So talk us through a typical approach of how you would employ BE or behavioural psychology. Where would you start? Yeah, I think one of the first things to consider is 
that our behaviours and decision-making is not necessarily rational. So that means that we need to look at how we're approaching a problem, how we're actually framing the challenge. This can be with uh, hypotheses, what we're expecting. It can be with actual investigations. And this is, I think, a really important part of it is to uncover behavioural insights Mm. in the first instance. If we want to know how to change behaviour, we need to understand what's driving that behaviour, what's underpinning it, what's aiding it, what's preventing it, what's influencing it. So we start by trying to uncover those behavioural insights, often done through research, Mm -hmm. observation, experiment, and as well as uh, looking at data as well. And then I think typically projects move along to, well, once we have behavioural insights, how do we use that and leverage that with other behavioural principles to change behaviour. Okay. And this is where we get nudges and interventions. So you mentioned behavioural principles there. Are there a defined number of behavioural principles? Do we need to learn them? Is it like times tables? How do you employ them or define them? The times table's great. I actually think that is how many people have approached this and how people sort of get into it and then start to talk about it. Yes, as a times table. Loss aversion framing, discounting the future, all cool little terms and terminology which have become those timetables. I actually think that's dangerous and again we've fallen, you know, as we used the principle before, we've fallen for our own biases in anchoring. So we, you know, maybe there's 150, 200 biases, which Mm -hmm. are not necessarily biases and principles. Mm. You can look it up on Wikipedia. Mm. These are the words that we throw around in an office with clients. We often use these words which are powerful to communicate and they do really give you an understanding of of what's happening. But we also can over-anchor on it and place too much importance on it. I actually see it as a little bit more fluid. There's principles which we haven't discovered. Different principles will work differently in different contexts. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, there's also very few in that our behaviour is actually very simple underlying that. So So I guess it's important then at the outset you're not thinking, okay, we want it how are we going to use superiority bias to influence this campaign? You don't start there, you start with those behavioural insights that the existing behaviours of an audience or of a particular group of people that you're seeking to influence and then let that guide yeah. the next step. I think that is very important to stay open-minded about mm. it. You can have hypotheses mm. and say, I think there's going to be some anchoring mm. issues here and I think there's going to be some discounting of the future in this situation. But if you're looking out for that and there your assumptions going in, yeah. perhaps that's all you'll see. So our own blind spot. So I do think staying open is incredibly important. In addition, we often see multiple principles working in a strange way. So mm. if we have five or six factors. I yep. kind of think of them as behavioural factors where this principle's working here but then this one counteracts it, this one amplifies this one and then this one complements it. So there really is, n- is not very often just one or two things yeah. that are working. It's very It's usually a mix of principles at play and understanding how they interact with one another. Would that be part of it as well? Absolutely. And then how they change. And when there's surprises as well. I think... As researchers, as scientists, as thinkers, as problem solvers, we get far too obsessed with proving our own hypotheses and that actually being surprised and have something not work as expected is actually how behavioural economics sort of 
came along yeah, anyway. Right. So discovering that you're wrong and your intuition mm. is wrong can be very useful. Awesome. We thought that we might also venture into some recent events and think about how we could apply B to that. So I think it feels like there's not a week or even a day that goes past without the news being dominated by Trump and his constant Twitter tirades and his catchphrases, if you like. So, you know, he's become quite a controversial character, even if you take the political aspects out of it from a sheer news and social media consumption point of view. So how would you employ B to advise those who may want to counter that voice and offer a different perspective and cut through that noise? Some of the interesting work I've seen in this is derived from a guy called George Larkov, who's an expert in framing. And this is really about how the mind works. The mind kind of understands information in terms of metaphors and it processes information like that. So some of the um, things that I've seen is include things like not using his name and to talk about the administration, for instance. His name's essentially like a brand, isn't it? I mean, it was before he was Mm. president. Yeah, absolutely. Not just his name as the brand, but I saw some research. I think System One Agency have a number of different measures looking at political issues, and one of them was uniqueness. And his hair, I think, is a factor. So the Donald Trump hair and the Trump name absolutely is a brand. And so using that just reinforces they're called the salience, so the awareness. The more it's in my mind Mm. and the more easily it comes to mind, the more significant it is, which is why people overestimate how many shark attacks there are. And they, you know, we're going to die of snakes and shark attacks when actually we don't generally. Mm. There's a few other factors which have been used and and suggested these include not talking about his personality and characteristics but actually arguing and discussing the policy and the policies and and having debates there not belittling supporters to acknowledge and listen to the points of view which is actually you know largely how Trump came to power in the first place and I think to keep things positive this is a, a time where emotional creatures I think there's been a climate of fear and anger in the US and that that you know this is very much uh, Obama's Mm. kind of message of hope this is almost like a light and dark side and and good (laughs) and evil if you want there's certainly contrast there and that again comes back to that metaphor issue of of sort of light and dark so hope versus anger and fear Mm. so to keep it positive and to focus on the things which people are for very interesting observations there so coming back to the realities of BE here in Australia and operating in the marketing or communications industry or the other areas of business that apply it if you want to have that conversation about utilising behavioural insights and thinking differently about a target market or, or a target audience How hard is it to convince the powers that be or to get that on the agenda with senior management? And perhaps what would you suggest a marketer or or someone should do to get that on the agenda? How would you convince them? Hmm. These days, I think uh, a lot of people are familiar with some of the the core kind of books and these sort of thinking fast and slow, Mm -hmm. nudge, predictably irrational. So they're kind of part of a business culture and people are sort of reasonably familiar with them. When it comes to actually adopting it and practicing it, there can be some fear because this is intimidating for some like 
it doesn't necessarily make sense. Mm. How do I, as a rational organisation that needs to make rational decisions, accept that some of these things could be completely wrong? So I think it partly goes back to that terminology issue. Do we call it behavioural economics? Do we call it BE? Yeah, okay. Do we call it psychology? Do we call it behavioural science? Is science useful? Is economics a useful term? Is insights a useful term? Is psychology a useful term? So you can sort of... Consider who you're speaking to and what's going to resonate with them. Exactly, exactly. And I find that sometimes it's a little bit of a Trojan horse in its let's look at some of the psychology here and then then we can talk about it and then we open up into the principles. I've also seen case studies work very well. And I think if you to talk about what competitors are doing or what other government policies are doing and to show the actual data, evidence, increasing sales, improving health, employee engagement and satisfaction, these numbers usually, yeah, really <laughs> usually connect. And you mentioned their government. We've really noticed that government and, and I say the finance industry seem to really have their finger on the pulse probably more so than other industries in Australia, unless the others are doing it so well we're not noticing at all. Um, Do you think that there's perhaps greater awareness of the benefits in, you know, is there a reason why they're more prevalent in those industries? And also, how does Australia sort of sit against other nations in our use of BE? I think government in general has been really leading and championing these approaches, partly because they've always been in the behaviour change industry in safer driving, health, food, nutrition, smoking, public transport, littering, don't do drugs, all of these Mm. kinds of issues and important social issues. They've been needing to change behaviour because that's essential and they Mm. feel it and governments succeed by doing this. And knowing that, They are focused on the behaviour. They're a little bit less interested in more esoteric brand Mm. and, you know, feelings and sentiment. They really need to cut to the chase. And I think in the UK, it's been really well adapted with the Behavioural Insights team and the Nudge unit sort of came about there. Now Australia's adopted it, and I think very well. And I think in collaboration with the UK, also the US is doing some great work. So there are these Behavioural Insights teams working with government and the uh, not-for-profit sector Mm -hmm. and they are doing lots of control studies they're using data because they've got access to data they've got budgets and they're adopting the science and willing to do anything i guess to change the behavior and australia's in a very good place we've got case studies which are known around the world we've got i think department of premier Cabinet here, yeah. yeah, doing some really great work. I heard a fantastic one the other day. It was on the panel where they're trying to encourage flexible work arrangements and yeah. sort of remote working and just sort of a healthy work environment. But they realised through the behavioural insights that the actually the powerful barrier to that is what will other people think? Yeah, looking sideways when somebody leaves at 4:30 p.m. Yeah, this is classic behavioural economics and mm. social norms mm. and that. So what did they do? It wasn't about telling people, hey, it's okay, you can go home and do this. It was actually changing the calendar defaults to shade out those parts of the time where you didn't need to be there as core hours. Yeah, That's right. what worked. So there was a visual cue every day in the calendar mm-hmm. that reminded you that this is what is, is and isn't expected of you or is and isn't the norm. Exactly. That It showed the social norm. Yeah, mm. it's great. And do you think that you mentioned that Australia has worked 
in tandem with other nations as well? Do you think that it's picking up pace here locally? Do you think that we're adopting it more across other industries? Yeah, I think government has um, has always been pretty active um, with behavioural insights. I think the finance industry mm-hmm. is because behavioural economics has a kind of a, a heritage mm. in economics and that some of the problems that the world is facing in terms of investment in the future, yeah. superannuation, yeah. Uh, 401k in the US, savings behaviour, even waste, sustainability, energy efficiency, all of these things are common problems for many countries and that good case studies are shared with each other. There's a great report that comes out, the OECD, which talks about all of the different behavioural interventions different governments and organisations around the world are doing and and their results and sharing that with each other. So I think the behavioural economics communities, the NGOs, not-for-profits, organisations and government are very interested in sharing with each other. Businesses, obviously it's competitive and they're keeping it you know, keeping their cards close to their chest. But, uh, yeah, I think a lot of work is being done behind closed doors, Mm. particularly with data. Yeah, I um, have to say that I've become a little bit obsessed with BE. I've been consuming podcasts like Invisibilia. I know, Chris, you mentioned The Hidden Brain earlier. brilliant. And then watching, more recently, watching Mindhunter, the Uh, Netflix series, and the behavioural science or psychology unit that when it was first sort of founded or expanded in the FBI, I can't help but constantly be drawing connections between these things. Very cool. Um, And now what's the new one I'm watching? The Manhunt Unabomber one. Oh, wow. Um, With Sam Worthington playing the, yeah, behavioural psychologist that's uh, tasked with creating a profile for the Unabomber, of which many previous have already done so. But all of it, to your earlier point about hypotheses and defining if we're too definitive in what we think something may be, we may not see what it really is. Mm. Um, All of those profiles had been built off a series of assumptions that they'd held throughout the years that the Unabomber had been undertaking his attacks. And it wasn't until this particular person, and of course this is with the um, fictitious version that I'm watching, I don't know how accurate it is to real life, he, in this enactment, he joins the team around the time that the manifesto was released by the Unabomber, which helps him to put forward the concept that he isn't a low IQ mm. uh, ex-airport mechanic, but actually an incredibly intelligent person who perhaps came from a different sphere of life, and then that shifts the whole thinking. So mm. it's been really interesting watching that and hearing you talk about different things like hypotheses and process and principles. It's and great. It sounds like you're All of a sudden I'm seeing it everywhere. <laughs> I think it's, it's like when we do media training with clients and we go through articles or watch television interviews and sort of ask them to tell us what made that newsworthy and what techniques did the interviewer use and things like that. And then all of a sudden, every time they're watching the news or consuming any form of media, they're, they're breaking it down into the pieces that we've talked about. They're seeing it all differently. Yeah, that's great. So once you've seen it, there's no no going back. Mm. I, I often think of this, and when I'm doing presentations or workshops, I often start with the matrix, the red pill yes. and the blue pill. Because once you start to go on this journey, and I do think it's a journey for people, it's like, oh, wow. And then nothing seems the same. <laughs> you see the whole world differently. I must admit, after we first met, I did go through a period of intense self-analysis. <laughs> Every time I was doing something, like, am I doing this because of I this bias or that we bias? we all do. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how many biases we have of our own. And that there's actually a bias that we're more able to see biases in other people than ourselves. Is that right? Yeah, it's like, I've got no biases. 
I'm completely <laughs> rational. All these biases exist in other people. How interesting. <laughs> Are they only attached to our decision-making, these principles and biases? Or is it more that our behaviour is inherently shaped by all the little decisions that we make each day? Is human behaviour essentially decision-making? Uh, this is a, it's a really good question. I don't have a... You know, a, a direct answer to this. I have to stump you on one of them. <laughs> no, it's, I, I think it's interesting to think about decision making. And yes, there are principles at play in how we make decisions, whether or not we want to invest in this, what we spend our money on, what we think is a good bet or not. But once those decisions, they can be irrational and predictable due to different psychology. That also differs from behaviour. So you can actually make decisions, but then when it actually comes to it, the behaviour will be different as well. So you can make irrational decisions that then aren't even followed by the corresponding behaviour. And then a secondary irrational behaviour. And because of that, that's why behavioural economics really focuses on behaviour. So I guess I'm less interested and focused on the decision-making because it doesn't necessarily correspond. So I think I'm going to do this. This is my decision-making here. And decision-making in an abstract level, like what would I prefer, this or this, at an experimental level, I yes. would choose this over this and I do this. As opposed to the actual action. As opposed to the actual yeah. action. So always start with the behaviour and then you can work backwards. Okay. And where do you think we're up to in BE? What do you think might be next uh, is there more research being undertaken Are we, or is there no next? Do we have a really good understanding of how we operate now? I don't even think we've scratched the surface. I think there's been some really good core understanding, mm-hmm. but in terms of Kahneman and System 1, System 2 and the subconscious and the role of habits, but there is so much more to explain. I mean, the brain is the most complicated thing that we know yeah. in the universe. So it makes sense that we're just sort of scratching the surface. I do think I actually, in some ways it sounds like a, you know, a contradiction. I actually see it in some ways as being a lot more simple. I've tried to take it back and deeper a level into evolutionary psychology um, and what they call ecological adaptation. So this is really that all of these behavioral psychology principles, and we call them biases when they're not. necessarily it may be a mismatch in how we've evolved and the psychology of the way that we've evolved and how our psychology doesn't change that quickly now we're in this new world from 10,000 50,000 years ago and our psychology looks like biases because we're not prepared for this so superannuation is a great one 10,000 50,000 years ago, it didn't make a lot of sense to prepare for something that was going to happen in 50 years' time. Because there was no 50 years' time. There was no 50 years' time. The person that that prepared for 50 years' time rather than next week or next year died. So now that we live longer and that we do have these lives, we still are acting in the moment seasonally, thinking about this rather than that. And it makes sense back then to do that, Mm. but now it doesn't. So... I find these kinds of things quite interesting in terms of status, herding, social norms, tribal, sex, power, costly signalling. So all of these evolutionary principles, in fact, I often see the world, my lenses are actually as as primates. Um, There's some really interesting work going on now about looking at bonobos and chimpanzees and how humans, part of our bias is thinking that we're special, this illusion of consciousness. We're actually a primate 
Yes. We're, we're on that tree. Yeah. And that if we look, take a view of primatologists, we start to understand that essentially we're kind of cave person, chimpanzee with mobile phones. <laughs> and that's how I see the world. Wow, that's a depressing picture. <laughs> oh, chimpanzees. Or, and or to your point, it simplifies things as well. We're and, overcomplicating it perhaps. Yeah, and the bonobos are pretty amazing creatures. Chimpanzees, a little bit edgy. A little bit more poo-throwing with the chimps, yeah. <laughs> 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 Although when you think about toddler behaviour, it's not really that much of a departure. No, that, that happens with humans. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing all these insights with Pleasure. us today. It's been really great to catch up and I hope to talk to you again soon. Big thanks to Impact. Um, thanks for having me. So we've explored some really interesting concepts and discussed some insights into bee thinking. But what about how it can be used to disrupt an industry, nudge positive behaviour and improve the financial literacy of an entire generation? Next, we're talking to Jess Ellum, the CEO and co-founder of superannuation disruptor Zupa. Jess has also worked at Tyro Payments and was a presenter at the Finance News Network. She's a huge fan of behavioural science and has explored the many behavioural barriers in achieving financial goals while setting up Zupa. We are going to chat to her about when BE came into her life and how it's helped to shape Zupa and the way the business has been built but also how it's going to help the financial literacy and future of Australian millennials. We're being joined by Jess. Jess, thanks for coming today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. I think one of the great places for us to start um, when we talk about B and Zupa and how it relates to you is when you first came across behavioural psychology or behavioural science in your world. Prior to ever getting into financial services, I was actually a scientist. So, I mean, I never practiced. Kind of a departure. <laughs> yeah. I never practiced as a scientist, but I studied chemistry. And alongside right. my science degree, I studied a bunch of other things. So biology, anatomy. So I've always had, I suppose, a scientific bench. And one of the really interesting things when you get into finance and when you obviously read widely, suddenly a lot of ideas merge together. And behavioral economics, behavioral psychology is one of those beautiful topics that merges a lot of different disciplines. Mm. And one of those is if you want to go down the scientific route, the psychology piece can get quite technical. Um, and one of them can be quite social, like the an anthropological yeah, right. view of it, right? And so I find all of that really fascinating. So for me, it was always on the fringes of what I was interested in reading about. And, you know, I think a lot of people have read the classics, right? Like Freakonomics, for example. Yes. So delving into some of those and then drawing it back to the financial piece. So it was never a primary part of my work, mm. but it was always an interest for me. And I think what really attracted me to Zupa was the fact that the team wanted to make it fundamental and core to yeah. the entire being of the business. You know, it was at its core a BE-driven fintech startup. Yeah, right. So what sort of behavioural insights or principles or how have you really approached things at Zupa? The key thing is to understand, first and foremost, we're a superannuation business, for those of you listening that don't know much about us. And probably when you just heard superannuation, you probably thought, oh, maybe I'll stop listening to this podcast. Because <laughs> could, that, over. <laughs> could that be a more boring subject or something I really don't want to think about? You know, it's all associated with the retirement. I don't really want to be retired, maybe. Yep. You know, I don't really want to be old and I yep. don't really want to die. And all of those <laughs> things sort of come in when you think about superannuation. And so, you know, when we looked at 
the fundamentals of superannuation and realised, you know, it's really important. We mm. all believe that we should have it and we know we like, we like the fact that it's there ticking away for us. But what a lot of us don't realise, because we're so disengaged with it, is it's probably not doing as good a job for us as it could be. So that could be that there's not going to be enough money there when we do retire because we haven't really factored in the rising cost of living sure. and the type of lifestyle we want. Or it could be invested in things that are actively working against us in terms of the type of future we want, right? So if we're really passionate about the environment or we're really passionate about, you know, a smoke-free world and mm-hmm. getting rid of things like, you know, lung cancer, would it bother us that our superannuation was invested in the same companies that are basically making those things happen? Yeah, right. Right? So I think, you know, there were lots of reasons that being disengaged with super was a bad thing, but you can't just turn around to someone and say, you should be engaged with your super because that doesn't work, right? You have to deeply understand what are the behavioural reasons why they're not engaged. And, you know, there's a lot of different principles you can draw on, but that principle one of discounting the future and not really thinking about our future state, living in the here and now, is a big one, and that shaped a lot of of the product decisions. Yeah, right. And so do you think that B is particularly important then for super because it really is that sort of discounting the future it's so far away is the driving force that we need to change behavior in this space for everyone to benefit yeah so i think with financial services and any financial decision making a lot of it to be successful has to be quite rational you have to make rational decisions you have to make analytical decisions you have to tap into a part of your brain that a lot of people don't really like tapping into and one of the things we do know about ourselves and it comes out more and more in a lot of research is that we're deeply irrational yeah we're fundamentally irrational but To be successful with anything financial, we have to tap into the rational part of ourselves. Some people are really good at that, but they usually sit at the fringes, right? And they're the kind of, you know, the financial wizards that are running hedge funds and, Mm. you know, able to just naturally live in that world. But for the vast 90% of us, we don't naturally live in that world. That's our biology and our behavior is fundamentally irrational. So... One of the things you can say is, well, let's make people more rational. But again, it's like saying, let's make people more engaged with superannuation. It's, it's just not going to happen. You'll mm. just be banging your head against a brick wall. And if you look at the way a lot of financial services businesses and superannuation businesses, they basically take that strategy. They try to appeal to the ra- irrational part of you. And I think what we're seeing now with fintech and technology and the ability to automate things in the background mm. and help create rational things that the irrational you doesn't have to set or partake in, like automatically saving or rounding up out of your spare change, you can actually achieve things that you were never able to do before. So it's kind of like, let's embrace irrationality. Let's not try and stop it. Let's then use technology to do rational stuff in the background. Yeah. So is it mostly about making it easy then? Like those roundup and automation, a lot of those things I know from a basic consumer, a banking app, for example, if it makes my life easy, like when Paywave came in, brilliant. Sure, I probably spend a lot more money now, (laughs) but if it makes my life easy as I'm leaving the checkout with two kids, then I'm happy. Yeah, this is the constant struggle, right? It's the convenience factor versus the friction factor. And I think a lot of us would default very quickly to say convenience is great. But actually, sometimes a little bit of friction is great too. And it's finding the, the right balance okay. and mix for the individual. And every individual is different. So I agree with you. How frustrating is it when you can't pay past something? Yes. But how much easier is it now to spend money? Yes. And so there's been a great 
convenience mm. boost, but there's also probably, if you actually went and reviewed your spending pattern, oh, yeah. you probably spend more now. Yeah. They might be smaller ticket items, but you probably spend more. Now, that's not great for your budget. might be great that you're saving time elsewhere or your kids are happier, so mm. you know what have you, but I think it's finding the balance between the two, and I think you can use technology to do that in a really smart way. Yeah. And that, again, taps into another type of bigger behavioral principle, I think, is it Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman, so that whole idea of thinking fast and slow, yes. sometimes you do want to think slow. Sometimes yeah. the friction is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're talking about a lot of finance examples. Why do you think the finance industry, perhaps more prolifically than other industries, has harnessed BE as part of its of how it shapes its products and its offerings to its customers? First of all, I think it never, ever used to. I think it wasn't interested. I think mm. it was a rational mindset. It yeah. was people that were in that fringe, you know, the people that really loved living in that rational world Mm. were designing products for people that really didn't like and lived in the irrational world. Mm. And therefore, they would probably just take what the rational people said as gospel or they would just not engage at all and do the bare minimum needed to get by. So a bank account, they wouldn't invest. They wouldn't touch on those areas that they felt they didn't belong in. And I think what you've seen with technology, you've seen the democratisation of access to it. You've seen people that were never, ever in a financial world take a foot and step into that world and go, I have these problems with my finances. I'm a consumer. I want to fix them. I've never worked for a bank, but I've consumed bank products. Why can't I build something that services me? And of course, what they're finding with those products is there's a massive untapped opportunity, right, to yeah. service people that Hence are building the rise products. of fintech. Absolutely, because it's everyday people building products for everyday people in their language. Yeah. And technology has enabled them, deregulation has enabled them to do that in the financial space. And That's probably been one of the last places where we'll see that disruption because of the regulation piece. There was a big wall and a moat that these big financial businesses had around this type of disruption. So there's all of these things are enabling massive change. And now the big institutions, the big end of town are waking up to that. And now they're getting into behavioural economics. So they're now saying, let's think like our customers. Let's take some steps into that world. Um, And I know Suncorp did a huge project around that. And I I followed some of it around understanding, you know, some of your BE drivers and financial wellness. So in essence, that's a good thing. Yeah. Because not everyone's going to go to a fintech for various reasons. But if the big banks who have the big customers start thinking. Yeah. So the collective competitive set is having a positive impact across the board. I definitely think so. So I definitely think so. I think it could move faster, but on the whole, yes. (laughs) That's because you're on the fintech side. Everything's too slow. (laughs) And so what are the main things that you've sort of learned or encountered in your sort of user and product testing with Zupa so far with BE? Yeah, so we're not yet live, but very close to. And I suppose in the lead up to going live, you know, you spend a lot of time working out the regulatory piece, but you spend most of your time building the product because that's ultimately what you're going to be serving up to customers. And that's what's been the most fascinating for us because that's actually given us the opportunity to talk directly to potential customers, get them to trial the product, see where it falls over, Mm. be really hard on ourselves. You know, what we thought would work sometimes doesn't work at all. And going right back to the drawing board and really listening to them and not putting our lens on it, but really trying to take their feedback in and and replace it. And uh, so a lot of those things came down to this is probably the very first time in a lot of people's lives, the majority of lives, that they've ever made a decision around superannuation. 
Yeah, right. And they have a big pool of money, right? Some people have forty, fifty, sixty, hundred thousand dollars, and they never made a choice about where that went. They never made a choice about where that was invested. They've possibly never invested anywhere else in their lives. And we're now asking them to make a choice about superannuation, an active choice, and we're asking them to make a choice about where their money goes. Now, a lot of people just throw their hands up in the air and go, "I don't want to do that." No, no, no. You, Too overwhelming. You decide for me because mm. you're the expert. And so what we wanted to do was get them comfortable that they could make that decision and that you know they could take back enough control not so much control but they could have enough control that was meaningful to where they were in their lives and their degree of financial knowledge so a lot of that came down to chunking the process up into steps and giving them this idea of a sense of completion along the way and that they were making progress so it wasn't overwhelming and another big piece was around the language so there's a lot of jargon in the financial services sector and of course that just naturally turns people off right Mm. that's like a behavioral showstopper (laughs) so we had to really find ways to just strip out as much jargon as possible and replace with human everyday language and those were probably the two key things another big thing was the paradox of choice right when you have a lot of choice you actually are paralyzed you don't do anything oh right so there's that famous experiment i think where you go into the supermarket and there's a woman with the selection of jams yes and you know when she has 20 jams versus when she has three or four jams sales are much higher when there's fewer jams because when there's too many jams we don't know what to do so we do nothing (laughs) so businesses that understand that principle really well actually see a much bigger uptick in revenue and, and sales in particular. And so we took that principle on and when we thought about our investment options, we could have had 100, but we whittled it down to three. Yeah. And then we made some decisions in the background because what we learned out of our user testing was that they expected those decisions to already be yeah, made for them. Right. So it's, yeah, finding that balance. So that balance between a sense of the consumer being able to have a say and a sense of control, but also trusting in the expertise of exactly the financial organisation. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's a tricky balance. I was also thinking about your experience in other areas. So when you're at Tyro and when you've, you've also done some work over at Finance News Network, have you also encountered it personally from a BE point of view? I know that when I first met Chris, I suddenly became incredibly self-analytical. It's like, and I do this, and I'm, if, am I using my system one or system <laughs> two? This is feeling like a difficult decision, and am I framing this correctly? Did you find yourself go through that as well, or because it's always been in the fringes of your life, you uh, haven't really analysed or overlaid it to other parts of your life? <laughs> I'm very hyper aware of my own <laughs> behaviour, which is awful. Like, I'm hyper aware of the bad parts of my behaviour, which I think is a natural human thing. We yeah. tend to focus on what's wrong with us rather than what's right with us. Yeah. And that could also be compounded as a female thing as well. Yeah, sure. There's an element of self-critical. that. Self-critical. Yeah, very self-critical. But one of the things I decided to do this year in January was try and address that, try and take... I'm sure people think I'm immensely in control of my financial life. I'm not. We <laughs> should you know, say that, but you know, there are things that I wish I was better at. And so one of the things... And your I'm, standards are probably a lot higher than the average person <laughs> Probably. One of the things I decided to do to to challenge myself was January 1st, I decided I'd do this thing called 31 Days of Wealth Hacks. And so every day I think of something I can do that either saves me money or earns me money. And then I post about it on Twitter and a lot of people follow and give suggestions. And so it's really interesting to see how you then tap into that realisation that you're not alone. That actually a lot of people didn't know that or wish they were doing that or have you tried this or it's great to know there's someone else that's as dumb as me when it comes to having too many subscriptions that you don't use. And so I think from that perspective, 
I like to experiment on myself. So maybe that's my science background. Yeah. Maybe that's because I'm kind of always in product creation mode. Yeah. But I use every opportunity to experiment on myself first yes. before I maybe take it back and go, hey, guys, I think this could work. This could be a product. Yeah, Why great. All that. And maybe that's an influence of BE and into my life. No, that's really interesting. I think it's probably a pretty good place to start as well if you can have that self awareness, yeah. then it allows you to look at things differently when you're approaching a product problem or another 100%. target market group's problem. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, Jess. No problem. And we'll chat to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the Impact Insights Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please jump onto iTunes or Google Play, rate us, review and be sure to subscribe to get first access to each episode as it's released. If you'd like to continue the conversation about behavioural science, get in touch or learn more, follow the Impact Agency on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or get in touch via our website, impactagency.com.au. Special thanks to Australian singer-songwriter Andy Gordon, whose song New York from the album Black Sea is the theme music for our Impact Insights podcast. You can hear more of his music at andygordon.com.au or on Spotify. Till next time. Bye.